Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And can I invite you, as the slide said, to open up your Bible. You can go to the New Testament, the second half of your Bible. And if you go past all the Gospels and the book of Acts, you get to these letters written by the Apostle Paul. And one of them is called the letter to the Ephesians. So if you can open up to the book of Ephesians with me, chapter 2, as we are continuing in our series called Not Do But Done, as we are trying to grasp, not in our minds only, but in the depth of our souls and experience, what the finished work of Jesus implies. So can I just, as you are searching for that scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, I would just venture to say this morning that everyone enjoys a good mystery. Isn't that true? We all enjoy a good mystery, whether it's maybe a good old mystery novel or movie. Um, you know, maybe it's like those good old whodunits, like uh, The Murder on the Orient Express is a classic. Or how about Knives Out recently with Daniel Craig? What a great movie. Or how about some mystery-laden board games? How many a relationship between siblings have been ruined by a game like Cluedo, where you finally realize it's Professor Plum with the candlestick in the billiard room, and you are just broken apart or how about mysteries within marriage can all the husbands just agree with me this morning that there is a question that is a deep mystery and that question is how do I look in these genes what is the answer to that question no man knows it's a deep mystery or maybe a mystery series you know probably one of the most famous and most downloaded podcast of all time was Serial that told the story of Anand Saeed, who is currently serving a life sentence for the murder of his ex-girlfriend while in high school. But the story is so layered and it's so complicated. I remember listening to this podcast in my early 20s and I would go to the gym early in the morning at five o'clock and I would sit in my car for half an hour listening, so engaged and forget to go to the gym and I would just drive back and that would be a bit of an epic fail. So we love mysteries or how about this website there's actually a website called the great mysteries of life.com and they have comical mystery questions like whose cruel idea was it to in the word lisp have the word s i mean who decided to do that that is a cruel mystery of the world so even in christianity they are deep mysteries we ask questions like how can god uh, in jesus be fully man and fully God? How is it that we can have free will and God can be sovereign? How is it that God himself can be one in essence and three in person? So, so many mysteries in our faith. But when it comes to this man called the Apostle Paul, he was one of the early followers of Jesus, he had such a radical meeting with the resurrected Jesus that before this, he was someone who gave his life to persecuting Christians. And after this meeting with Jesus, he started planting churches. And he says, this man who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote most of the New Testament, he says, those mysteries don't captivate me. Because that's what a great mystery does. It, it enthralls us. It captivates us. It amazes us. But more than anything, it holds our attention. A great mystery holds our attention. And Paul says, those mysteries of the faith, as important as they are, they don't hold my attention. He says, there's one thing that so stirs me, that so grips me, that as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he apexes in this moment in Ephesians 5, and I'll just read it to you, just that verse. He says, this mystery is profound. He says, this mystery is profound. So it grips me, and it's that mystery that I want us to see today can 
absolutely change the direction of your life. And maybe in this moment already, I want to invite all of us today to ask the Holy Spirit, whether you are a Christian or you are trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, investigating this faith. You are wrestling through some of your own um, issues of religion or doubts and seeking. I want to ask you in this moment just to open up your heart to make today so personal, to make it personal to who you are. Because guess what, friends? If we were today to solve the mystery of Stonehenge or the mystery of Anand Saeed on cereal, that'd be great, but it would not make a difference to your life tomorrow. You would not wake up tomorrow and have a whole new outlook on life. Whereas this mystery that Paul speaks of, this profound mystery, it has the potential to absolutely change the very way you live your life, the very potential of your life. Because the reality is this, if I can just speak to Christians really quickly, the reality is that most Christians live day to day from an experience of distance with God of uncertainty with God in their relationship, of a place of inadequacy. I'm not adequate. I'm not good enough. I'm not making the cut. And they live with a sense of performance, the sense of having to earn, the sense of timidity because of that, of uncertainty, and just an ineffective faith. I'm not free of that, friends. I wrestle with that on a weekly basis. But I can tell you many years ago, as I just became a Christian, how much more was that the case? You know, I remember in my early 20s, I got saved into this incredible church, but I would go to church on a Sunday, and I would be so deeply ashamed of some of the things that I had done in the week, so that I would enter into the church building, literally with my, with my head hanging like this. And I would, just in the worship time, I would literally sit down, I would just sit like this, I couldn't even look up. And I'm not sure what I was doing. Maybe I was waiting for God to mellow out in my heart or something like that. You know, the music just mellows him out and eventually I can stand up and I can worship him. Or at other times I would have opportunities at the university to speak to other people that had interest in Jesus. I could share my faith with those who do not yet know Jesus. But in that moment, this voice in my heart would tell me, no, you are not adequate. You are not that kind of Christian, a mature Christian, a strong Christian. That's not who you are. So leave it to someone else. Or mostly I would see in community, and I see this happening so often in the church today, We would have moments where I can honestly share where I am. These are my struggles. These are the things that trip me up in my faith. And instead of sharing with boldness and community, I would share these superficial things. It would be a men's evening or a community group, and I can share with other men, this is what's really happening in the depths of my heart and life. And what would I do? I would share these superficial things because I would be afraid. What would this say about the kind of Christian that I am? I see that today. Guys, even in Hatfield, who are going through difficulties, and we take a step back from community because we don't feel adequate. This is such a massive thing in our faith. And maybe you find yourself like that, yo-yoing up and down in your faith. Sometimes you feel strong, and you feel accomplished, and you feel that you're winning, you're in victory. And other times you feel defeated, and you feel timid, you feel distant from God. And it's this mystery, Paul says, that can absolutely change all of that. So Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing from prison, and he's writing to this church in Ephesus, which is this massive multicultural city, and he's writing to encourage them about who Jesus is. Read with me. I'm going to make some comments as we go. Ephesians 2 verse 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation just to make it a bit easier this morning. But Paul says, don't forget 
that you Gentiles, and Gentiles is just a word that Jews use for non-Jewish people. So a lot of us today are probably in that sense Gentiles. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be what? Outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. And so Paul's making it clear that the Jewish people, many of them, were simply going through the religious motions. They were doing a whole bunch of religious activities, but they were not serving God in their hearts. And so in verse 12, he says, in those days, this is kind of the pre-Christian days he speaks of, and listen to the language that he uses of distance. He says, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world, and maybe this is a statement over your life today. Maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you are seeking, and you feel like you are living in this world without God and without hope. And then, as Paul often does, having created the context where we find ourselves, he shares the good, really good news. Verse 13, he says, but now you have been what? United with Christ Jesus. And yes, once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. That is so powerful. And three things that we just quickly see in the scripture that Paul makes clear. He says that number one, we don't bring ourselves to a place of acceptance before God, but that's religiosity. That's works. That's the, the treadmill of religion, the rat race of piety, trying to be a good person. We don't bring ourselves. He says, no, we are brought near by Jesus, by the life, death, and resurrection, not some philosophical idea, the historical work of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. It brings us near to God. And more than that, he says, not only are we brought near based on our performance or our pedigree or our history or how squeaky clean our past is or, you know, the ways that we've kept ourselves pure, we've always gone to church or our parents are Christians. No, he says, those are not the things that bring you near. He says, you are brought near. Wow. It's through the blood of Christ. In other words, this thing that happened once and Jesus said it's finished. It's not due, but it's done. He says that is the thing that brings you to God. But thirdly, and that's the one that we want to look at today, so important. He says that it's not just that you are brought through the blood of Jesus, through putting your faith in who Jesus is. It's not that you are just brought in you know, a closer vicinity to God, into a more acceptable distance from God. You were really bad, now you're a bit better. No, it actually says you are brought near to God. And then it goes further. It says you are united with Christ. You are united with Christ. We are brought into a place of what? Closeness through Jesus to our God, creator, and father. That is the most true statement you can make about a Christian. So Paul's argument is so clear. It's razor sharp under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit today. He is saying this. Christianity focuses all in on this idea that in Jesus, we do not live 
for closeness with God. We live from closeness with God. We are not living as Christians for closeness in what we do. Everything we do is lived from closeness with God in Jesus. And it's so important to ask, why does this make a massive difference? It makes all the difference. It's the difference between every single religious idea mankind over hundreds and thousands of years has ever had and this one compelling mystery, this one thought. Why is it so important? Well, let me give you one example. I think the reason it's important is we see that the most compelling figure, bar none in history, Jesus of Nazareth, this is how he lived. It's how he lived. In fact, it was the most defining feature of his life and ministry, that everything that he said, everything he did, everything he taught, everything that he accomplished, he did it not for closeness with his father. He made it clear that he was doing it from this intimate, close relationship with his father. And that was the otherness that so struck people. It's a reason why billions of people over the last 2,000 years, have been captivated so deeply by this man because his authority, his, his prayer, his love, his truth, his passion, his way of handling difficulty, his fearlessness, his joy, the joy that didn't just attract religious people, churchy kind of people, the joy that attracted the broken, the hurting, the sinful to him, that otherness came not because he was great and attracted the closeness of the Father, but because he lived in close relationship, from close relationship to the Father. He didn't live a certain way so that he would gain the acceptance and the love of the Father. He lived in a posture, a 24-7 posture, a conviction that he had the acceptance and the love of the Father. Even at his baptism, we've preached about this so many times at Hadfield. Matthew 3, verse 17, the voice of the Father through the Holy Spirit speaks in this moment of baptism. And the Father says over Jesus, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am what? Well pleased. I am well pleased. And this is when Jesus had not done anything yet. He hadn't called a single disciple. He hadn't done a single miracle. Not a teaching to see yet. And here the Father says, I am well pleased with him. You see, many people think that we, you, we come to Christianity, you investigate it so that maybe you can escape, you know, to heaven from earth or something like that. That's maybe the reward of Christianity. But Jesus comes to show us that the true, the primary focus, the true reward, if you want to put it like that, of Christianity is not escape to some ethereal realm. The true reward of Christianity is a, a close and reunited relationship with the one that your heart cries out for in its darkest moments. I know this of every single person who's hearing my voice today, whether you are Christian, non-Christian, spiritual, irreligious, agnostic, atheist, I know that every single one of us, when we are honest, we call it different things, we express it in different ways, but we have this deep longing in our souls to be accepted, to be known, to be loved, to be spoken over with care. And we know that that usually means that someone that you look up to, someone who is in some kind of higher status than you in life, if they speak over your life, that they are pleased, they are proud, they love you, that means everything. 
So what would it mean that in Christianity, it's not a God saying, come and find me, but I have come to find you in your brokenness. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I come to speak over you. I am pleased with you. That's the Christian faith. And it makes all the difference in in how we approach Christianity. Why? Because as I said, everyone is looking for closeness. Everyone is looking for intimacy. Everyone is looking for acceptance. And we see it in the way that we tackle relationships. Relationships with siblings, with parents, with friends, with colleagues. But let me maybe just use the example today of sexuality. Sexuality is often weaponized. It's used so that we can receive some kind of sense of I'm whole, I'm close, I'm loved. You know, once in Dr. Bloom, uh, a young adult came to me. He wasn't in the church. And he said he wanted to have coffee with me. And we sat there and he broke into tears. And he said, I am addicted to sex. He says, I jump into multiple times in a week. I, I jump into bed with some woman that I've, I barely know her name. And right after this, this act of sex, I feel so empty. He was longing for what? For wholeness. Not too long ago, the New York Times ran this incredible article from a secular perspective saying, listen, the last you know, 50 years, the, the culture has been saying to women, listen, you should just be like men in that sense. You know, the worldly men, just enjoy casual sex. It's going to fulfill you. It's gold power. It's 2021. Come on. And this secular writer says, listen, this has been my journey. I've done that. I've followed the promise of the world. And she says how often it's happened. She uses Tinder, the dating app, and she has this guy who pushes her into bed. Basically, it's all that it's about. And again, right after their sexual interaction, he says that guy doesn't hold her. He doesn't speak to her. He doesn't care for her. He's at the foot of the bed with his app open already looking for the next person to connect with. There's an emptiness that we experience. There's a, there's a young man that I walked the road with for many years, beautiful guy, and he got saved radically in Dr. Bloom, and he came to me this evening, tears in his eyes, saying, I need Jesus. And he was in a relationship with a girl already at that stage, and as we started this discipleship journey, at one stage, this thing of, of their relationship came up. And I told him, listen, I, I don't think what you are doing, sleeping together, this is not the will of God. This is not honoring to God. This does not express the shalom, the wholeness of God. And it was so incredible to see that when they took that area of their relationship out, when they stepped away from the sexuality, they both said they realized there was nothing. They had no true wholeness and connection with each other. We are all in our, in our own ways with money, with, with influence, with our parents, with sexuality. We are looking to know that we are loved and whole. And so that, you know why that's so important? That filters into how we think about God. Just the other evening, I'm praying for my son. We, we take a moment and we pray for each of our kids before they go to bed. And just before I pray, Benjamin, my son, he asks me, he's six years old, and he says, listen, dad, did I do well today? And I'm kind of puzzled. I'm like, I don't understand. What do you mean? He's like, did I do well? Was I a good son today? Yo, guys, I, I had to keep it together in that moment. And I thought, if my son thinks that he needs my approval and the, the doing and the doing, and I just told him, listen, I just want to tell you, irrespective, I love you. You are my son. That's what's important. 
That's how we think about faith. And I just want to show you, just contrast this idea of having to earn, having to achieve, having to find, having to give myself sexually, relationally, emotionally, so that I would find some kind of deep voice of acceptance. Just contrast that to what people think Christianity offers. It's saying to you, come and give yourself, come and offer yourself, come and serve, come and pray, come and chant, come and do some, you know, fivefold path, and you will find, no, listen to what Paul says. Not once does the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, use this word Christian. Now, his favorite phrase that he uses for Christians is this phrase, what? In Christ. It's the one that he uses most. Out of all of them, he says, Christians are known by one thing. They are found in Christ. In fact, he has these massive statements. He says, we are crucified with Christ, Galatians 2. We are buried with Christ, Romans 6 from last week. We are raised with Christ, Colossians 3. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, victory, places of authority. And those words, you know, these Greek words, they actually one word, a word like seated with Christ, raised with Christ, died with Christ. They are not separate words in Greek. It's one term. And Paul just adds this prefix to mean with. And those words literally did not exist in the Greek language. Paul made up new words. Why? Because, you know, hundreds and thousands of years of religiosity did not produce the vocabulary to speak about what Jesus was coming to do. I'm not offering you a path. I am the path. I'm not offering you a a second chance at life. I'm offering you life. I'm offering you to come and be so represented by my life and my death and my resurrection that you would find yourself, not just intellectually or religiously or once a week on a Sunday, but that every facet of your life would be described in this way, in Christ. In fact, we are so represented by Christ in his life, death, and resurrection that I would say if the defining feature of Jesus' life is that he lived from the place of acceptance and closeness to God, the defining feature of the Christian life is that because of Jesus, we live from a place of closeness and intimacy forever in God. That's Christianity. It's not what you can do. It's what he has done and now going to do through you. And isn't that, I've said it so often, I'll say it till the end of the series, this is so opposed to our picture of religiosity, of the treadmill of, of, you know, piety and religion and moralism. Why? Because religiosity, doing things that you would earn the grace and the peace and the hope of God, you know, that thrives, that treadmill that always leaves you tired emotionally, it thrives on these words like distance and delay It thrives on these words like separation and uncertainty. You're never certain. You know, a couple of years ago, for some of my post-grade studies, I was partnered up with this guy in North Africa. We had to do a mock coaching session. And uh, we used Skype. That was before Zoom was like a thing. And so, unfortunately, the connection was so bad that we had a comical conversation with one another. We were speaking over each other. It's like this 30 second delay. It was a disaster. Why? Because the distance and the delay, it created such uncertainty in our conversation, timidity in our relationship. And that's exactly what religion does to your heart. You're always uncertain. Am I enough? Am I worthy? Am I adequate? And religiosity wants to keep you in that space where you're always trying to get into God. 
you know, into his good books, trying to curry favor from him, trying to see if he's angry at you and he's punishing you again because you've been so bad. That's what religiosity does. Imagine just the effect that it would have for those who are married today. Imagine that your marriage was not something that's set in stone legally and then you live from that place, but there was some kind of system. It's like an app and it tracks you every day and then every action that you perform in your marriage, at the end of the day, it tallies your score and it says, okay, let's see if you will be married tomorrow or not. And it says to you, okay, well, you did pretty good today. You know, just made it. Okay, you're still married tomorrow. Or you did so badly, no longer married. You have to earn it again tomorrow. Do you think that would create this open, committed, devoted, loving, intimate relationship? No, I think it would create this tension-filled, this, this timid, this uncertain relationship. And that's exactly what we see in Christians, so many of them. My life falls apart. My work is taken away from me. I, I lose my health or someone around me is hurt. And immediately, God, where are you? Am I, am I not worthy anymore, God? I don't experience your closeness emotionally in this week, God. It's probably because I am the worm. I am inadequate. I have not done enough. And the issue is when I live in that constant state as a Christian, maybe as a non-Christian, and you're trying to work your way into this place of inner peace, nirvana, and spirituality, if that becomes the path that I walk, I will always be ineffective. I will always feel I don't make the cut. I will always feel that others should rather do this. I'll never go into my marriage with the authority that God has placed me there to love and to sacrifice myself. I'll never go into my workspace knowing that there is something so profoundly different in my heart and mind and spirit that God has placed there. I'll never, when I've messed up so badly, I've never messed up that badly in my whole life, I will immediately go to the word and the spirit and the people of God because I have not moved an inch in my standing before God. If that is the way that I live. Now, religion wants to keep you timid, defeated, unsure, ineffective and distant. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes to announce, friends, just hear that again, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. That was a word co-opted by Paul. From kings, they, they declare victory in a moment of military victory, and they say now everything is different. Turn to this new reality. Jesus comes to announce in a culture of religiosity, I have defeated the enemy devil and sin. I have defeated death itself. I have defeated your broken past. I have defeated your mistakes. I have defeated your rebellion, your hate, your frustration, your doubt. I have defeated it and God has come near. It's not an announcement of what you can bring to the table, but the everything that God has done, even in the name of Jesus. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. So what do we do? What do we do in this space. And here's the one thing, just practically, that I want to give to you today. And it's counterintuitive because I don't want you to go and do something. I want you to go and rethink, to, to have re-perspective over your life. Listen to this, John 14, verse 19. Jesus makes this statement. It's not a question. It's not up in the air. It's a statement. He says, because I love you will live too. Because I live. If, if it's true that Jesus is 
dead and buried to our old life, and he is resurrected. He says, because I live, you will live too. And that, if that's true, what does he say? On that day, on the day that it grips you, that it overwhelms you, that it brings you to your knees and tears of grace, he says, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. What is Jesus doing? He is not opening up a conversation, as we like to say in 2021. Very politically correct. Guys, let's just have a conversation about this. He comes into the midst of religious conversations, and he announces, he says, this is objective truth. So let your mind and your heart and your perception of your circumstances bow before the truth. And in those moments where you feel defeated, God feels distant, you feel like a failure, you feel inadequate, let those feelings, as C.S. Lewis says, let them know it's time to get off the bus. Because Jesus is true. Yes, I feel defeated this morning, but it's not the truth. I love what Brother Lawrence, he's one of the early church fathers, he has this famous booklet called Practicing the what? The process of getting to God? No, practicing the presence of God. We are to practice our belief of what's true. You know, in Afrikaans, we have this phrase, you know, groot christene, people that are strong Christians. Oh, that person's such a big Christian. Guys, you know what a strong Christian is? It's someone who's allowed the depth of the victory of Jesus to genuinely overwhelm their emotions and their circumstances. It's when we practice the truth. Just even think, you know, often in Hatfield, we speak about the three primary ways that God disciples us. What are the means of love and discipleship? It's the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. It's the Bible, it's prayer, and it's the community of God's people. But often we see those things as rights, as, as a way to earn God's love. Oh God, you know, I'm trying to read and I'm sorry I missed a day. God, I'm, I'm trying to pray, but I don't have the words. God, I've, I've tried to go to church as often as I can, but I, I'm, not, I'm not enough. I'm, I'm inadequate. But if I practice the presence of God, it means I open the Bible with the expectation to from the place of closeness and acceptance say, God, come and convince me even more of your love. Come and convince me even more of your victory. God, I read the Bible with this, this static smile on my face to say, look at what God has done, and I move from that place. I pray in a posture of absolute boldness before the Father because he invites me like that. He's not asking for timid uncertainty. He says, come and stand before me, my son and daughter, and speak to me. Converse with me. Tell me where you are. Hear my voice. And church is not a place where I performatively earn some status before God. It's the place where I walk with people to become more convinced of who Jesus is. And when I mess up, I don't run away from the people of God. I run right to the people of God. That is practicing the truth, practicing the presence of God. See, the enemy's strategy is so simple. He wants you to focus more on your own thoughts, your failures, your circumstances, and who you used to be. And Jesus comes and he says, no, I want you to learn with me, move with me to, to see what I have done, to know what I have done, and to live from what I have done. First John 4 verse 10 says this, if you're struggling with that, that deep sense of love this morning, and you say, I hear what Joe is saying, I need to love God with power, with, with, with grace. I need to, to love him. No, this is what the Bible says. Love consists in this, 
not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's where it starts. And so just in closing, I just want you to just imagine something with me this morning. Maybe you need to close your eyes and just imagine this with me. What would it look like if your life actually, if it actually functioned from this place? What would it look like if the church, if Dr. Hatfield in the city of Pretoria, if the church in South Africa started functioning from the place of closeness and not for it? What would that mean? What would it look like? And I want you just to imagine in your heart just for a second what your life, the potential of your life, the boldness of your faith, the strength of your hope, what it would mean to colleagues, to friends, to your kids in your house, to your, to your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend, what would it mean to them if you started living from this absolute acceptance and closeness with God? Because I think what it would mean as we would have a church, not running in circles trying to prove its worth before God, but going into the city with such a conviction of what Jesus has done that we announce with our words and our actions, the kingdom is near. Turn. Find life in Jesus. You would go into your work with such assurance that even the most backstabbing moment in a boardroom can never take away your worth. You would know that even if you are in a place where, where your, your marriage was a failure and, and you are now single again or you having to step into the place of marriage once again, you feel, God, I'm such a failure. I don't deserve your life. I don't deserve anything that you would know that it's not what you can do, but it's what he has done. You know, it's, it, is, it, is, it is like marriage. You know, just yesterday, exactly 13 years ago, I asked Shay to marry me. What a beautiful moment. And just yesterday, we were reminiscing, and I say that because Shay reminded me, obviously, I'm terrible with dates, so I've got, like, anniversary, but I completely forgot about that one. But just as we were speaking about it, we were just reminiscing about the fact that on that day when I asked her, guys, I loved that girl. I loved her. But over the last 13 years, that has become so much more. And I think about it, I read a book a couple of years ago where the guy used exactly this example of marriage and he spoke about his grandparents who had been married for 70 years. And he says this about their marriage. He says, now objectively, they were no more married on that last day of their life together than on their wedding day, 70 years before. When the minister first pronounced them man and wife, they were fully and completely married. Legally, they became a new entity, a married couple. But subjectively, their experience of this new intimacy, it grew over time. The sentence finishing, the mind reading, the need anticipating, the thinking of one another before themselves, that grew over the years. And just as in a long marriage, your experience of being found in Christ is something that will grow over time. What is the mystery that so grips Paul? It's when he's writing about the good news and he gets to marriage and he says, man, marriage is a man giving up his life to love his partner, his wife. And then suddenly it strikes him. You know what? Actually, I'm speaking about Jesus. Actually, I'm speaking about the covenant commitment of God to his people. Friends, God has wed himself to you in Jesus. And the depth to which you accept that, live from it, and you allow that to transform you, will be the depth of your peace and joy and boldness. It's not what we can do. 
It's what he has done. Pray with me. God, I just pray today that as Dr. Hatfield, God, we would be infinitely more convinced of our sufficiency in Jesus than the insufficiency of our past, of the healing that we have in Christ and the brokenness of who we used to be, and of the wholeness that only you bring far more than the warfare we used to experience. And Jesus, I pray that if there's someone today who realizes I am without Christ, I'm not found in Christ. I'm found in religiosity. I'm found in works. I'm found in secular hopelessness. I pray that today they would go down on their knees and say, Jesus, I want you. I need you. I give my life and my heart and my mind to your finished work. Come and renew me. Make me yours. We pray that. In Jesus' name, amen.